Good morning. My name is Daniel Mattingly. I joined the temple a little over two years ago, about the time most of the temple programs went online due to the pandemic. So I've probably met some of you through some of the Zoom programs, and I'm very much looking forward to meeting all of you, uh, hopefully uh, in the not too distant future, when it's once again safe to meet uh, together indoors and to be in person. So this morning, I would like to talk about our original nature, our true nature. In the scripture of the Founding Master, Chapter 7, Master Sote-san talks about the importance of getting to know one's original true nature. The Founding Master said, The reason a person cultivating the way endeavors to see the nature is to know the original realm of the nature, and by using one's mind and body without fault like that realm to achieve perfect Buddhahood. So according to this, when we see the nature, when we experience our original true nature firsthand, we will know the original realm of the nature, which is Ilwan. We'll see that our true nature is not separate or different from Ilwan. We'll know that our nature, our true nature, is Ilwan. We'll see that who and what we really are is as perfect and complete as Ilwan, just the way we are right now. The text goes on to say, with our eyes opened to this reality of who and what we really are, we'll be able to use our minds and bodies without fault like that realm to achieve perfect Buddhahood. This message is echoed in the Ilwan Song vow, which says, We vow to practice wholeheartedly modeling ourselves after Ilwan Song. To practice wholeheartedly means to use our minds and bodies skillfully. Modeling ourselves after Ilwan Song means to model our practice on that realm that is without fault, which is Ilwan. The Ilwan Song vow goes on to say, until we attain the great empowerment of Ilwan and become one with the nature of Ilwan. This is another way of saying, until we achieve perfect Buddhahood. Now, I don't know about you, but my first reaction to this is that it sounds pretty far-fetched and pretty unattainable for this ordinary human in this lifetime. But if I pause for a moment and remind myself that things are often not as they appear, my curiosity kicks in and I'm drawn to take a closer look. So, I invite you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine 
that you're an average middle-class person going along in your life. You have an average job and make average pay. You live in an average house in an average neighborhood. And like most other middle-class people, you're careful how you spend your money. You make sure not to waste money and you try to spend it wisely so that you can afford the things that are important to you and make sure you have enough for retirement. Now, imagine that one day you find out that you are actually quite wealthy. Unbeknownst to you, you are very, very rich and you're just now finding out about it. You're absolutely blown away when you learn that a huge sum of money has actually belonged to you all along, but you had no knowledge of it. You breathe a huge sigh of relief when you realize that you no longer have to worry about not having enough money. Now you know that you'll be able to live comfortably for the rest of your life without financial stresses or struggles. You're thrilled and beaming with joy and excitement about the possibilities that lay before you. In chapter 7, verse 8, Master Sotesan says, that's what it's like to experience one's original true nature for the first time. He said, seeing the nature is like a millionaire who, without realizing that his assets are his own, one day eventually comes to realize that fact. Here's how I imagine this scenario. We ordinary human beings go along through our ordinary conditioned lives, bouncing up and down, back and forth between happiness and suffering, pleasure and pain, knowing that what lies ahead is more suffering, old age, sickness, and death. And then one day, it's as if we take off a pair of glasses with muddy lenses. Now, for the first time in our lives, we see everything with a clarity and sharpness and vividness that makes it seem like we were previously living in a bad movie or a bad dream. We begin to see that the reality of the world and everything in it is actually quite different from how we saw it before. Like the person who discovered they were very wealthy, we are overjoyed to know who and what we really are, and tremendously relieved to see the path that leads to the end of our suffering and to complete peace so clearly laid out in front of us that we don't know how we could have missed it before. In the second part of verse 8, the founding master goes on to say, commanding the nature is like a millionaire 
who now realizes that fact, but who for some time has lost those assets to others during the days of his ignorance, and therefore resorts to various means to recover the rights he'd lost. Commanding the nature is another way of saying using one's mind and body without fault like that realm to achieve perfect Buddhahood. Going back to our scenario, it turns out that our vast wealth has become scattered around in various places over the years when we didn't know that it was ours. So now we need to begin to recover what belongs to us. We need to realize our Buddhahood. To put it another way, commanding the nature means to use our minds and bodies skillfully to realize our full potential. This brings us full circle back to where we began with chapter 7, verse 7, where the founding master talks about the reason that we endeavor to see the nature. And this brings us to the title of this talk. Why do we practice? As we saw in the first passage this morning, the founding master said that the reason to practice is to experience our true nature, model ourselves on our true nature, and thereby achieve perfect Buddhahood. He felt so strongly about this that he went on to say, if one only tries to see one's nature, but not to achieve Buddhahood, this would be of little use, like an axe that is well-crafted, but made of lead. Wow! To say that practicing is of little use unless one's goal is to attain Buddhahood seems like a very strong statement and it strikes me in an odd way. What if we don't really think it's possible to attain Buddhahood? How can we try to achieve something that we don't really believe in? What if the reason we practice is to be a happier and nicer person and to have a better life and help others, but without trying to do what seems impossible. If this is our reason for practicing, how can our practice be of little value? Well, when I finally paused and took a closer look at Master Sote-san's actual words, he doesn't say we need to achieve Buddhahood or that we even need to believe it's possible. What he says is this. If we experience our true nature, we'll know that we can stop creating suffering for ourselves and others, and we'll know how to have complete peace. And if we know these things and then don't use them to try to realize our potential it would be a waste. An athlete knows they will never have a perfect performance record. No matter how hard they try, 
they'll never achieve perfection. But that doesn't stop them from having a goal, an ideal, a vision of perfection that they aspire to. Modeling their performance on a vision of perfection during practice helps them to achieve greater success in their sport. And a good coach strives to guide and motivate them to help them maximize their success. Using this analogy, we don't have to believe that we can achieve supreme enlightenment in order to make progress on our path. But having a vision of perfect Buddhahood to aspire to will make a huge difference and help us to achieve much greater success. In fact, it might even be necessary to ensure that we don't get sidetracked down an unwholesome dead end. As to why the founding master chose to use such strong wording, maybe he just wanted to make sure that he got our attention the way a good coach would. I know it worked for me. Thank you.